Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Who is Jesus Christ? At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 1, verse 1 affirms it. In the beginning was the Word, the Lord, God the Son. And the Word was with God the Father, and the Word, the Lord, God the Son, was God. The Bible refers to Jesus in so many ways. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the King of Israel. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He is the great I Am. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the light of men, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, and it's a pleasure to be granted the opportunity by God to study his word. The Apostle John gives us the reason to study the Word of God. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things written in the Bible have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God in human form, and that by believing in him, you may have have the resurrection life in his name. Uh, Pastor John Farley is doing a study of uh, the Gospel of John, and he said there are 98 times when the word believe occurs in John. And so that's what the study of the Word of God is all about, that we believe. Well, it's homecoming weekend. Welcome once again to the non-resident members of Barah Ministries Congregation. The people who study with us on the internet have come for a visit, and we're so happy to have them here. Welcome home also. Yeah. Thank you. Where's that? Where's that guy? Come on. Oh, yeah, now go ahead, man. Eat your uh, little shortbread cookie over there. And, you know, just whenever you get ready, uh, we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> Welcome home also to Pastor John Farley and his wife, Roberta, our honored guests who are joining. <laughs> yeah, no, just, no, we don't need the, the crowd noise, yeah. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Love that guy. <laughs> So Pastor John and his wife, Roberta, our honored guests are joining us from Lighthouse Bible Church of South Florida. Welcome also to all the members of Lighthouse Bible Church who are tuning in to these lessons, yeah? 
All of you, your families, your pastor, your church, and your spiritual welfare are a concern as we go boldly before the throne of grace in prayer. And we're grateful to know that all throughout the world, and especially in your church, the truth concerning the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his word are being constantly honored and taught in every single lesson. The homecoming lesson for me, how does Satan see you? How does Satan see you? Well, back when I was coaching youth basketball, I had a player who on any given night was the best player on the floor, more talented than all the rest. Yet during the critical two minutes that inevitably decides every basketball game, he doubted himself. And during the times when our team had a chance to wrest the momentum from the opponent team, he doubted himself. And after watching this for three games in a row, three close losses, I reached my boiling point. During a critical stretch of the fourth game, he committed a careless turnover. I called timeout. It's very unusual to call a timeout after a turnover, but I had had it. So the team was wondering what was up as they came to the bench. The timeout was for him and him alone. I stared a hole in him as he walked over, head down, dejected. What did I say to him? In the calmest voice I could, considering that I wanted to kill him, I said, Steve, you can doubt yourself anytime you want, but do it at home and not when you're playing basketball in front of me. Understand? I gave him the Miyagi understand too. Understand? Well, evidently he did because we didn't lose another game that season, and we won the championship. In last night's lesson, I passed along a modified version of the same message. How does God see you as believers in Christ? He sees a person who is transformed from an old man to a new creation, from dust to a work of art, from a sinner to a saint, from an unbeliever to a priest from a commoner to an ambassador, from the owner of unrighteousness to the possessor of absolute righteousness, from unholy and condemned to holy and blameless, from in union with Adam to in union with Christ, to from in the flesh to in the spirit, from slavery to redemption, from exile to reconciled, from free agent to a possession of God, from guilty to justified, from the object of wrath to the focus of forgiveness, from an orphan to a child of God. And with that message, I want you to know this. It's never okay with me for you to doubt yourself. Amen? Amen. So here's the next question to consider. How does Satan see you? How does Satan, the enemy of God, see you? You now know how God sees you, but how does his enemy see you? Deacon Denny Goodall blew this one wide open for me. Last Sunday, I told the congregation that I'd be teaching on this, and during one of the breaks, Deacon Denny said, Satan sees us the same way God sees us. That was mind-blowing. I said, wow. See, Satan knows this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. Thanks be to God the Father who gives us believers in Christ the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The game is over. Believers in Christ have won. 
And Satan knows this. Remember, he is a brilliant genius. So he knows this. He sees us the same way God sees us, but he hates it. There's the difference. So he spends all his time and resources to convince us that we aren't the way God sees us. And, unfortunately, we believe him. Well, in this first lesson, we'll take a look at how the enemy of God works to rob us of our mental serenity. Then Pastor John Farley will be back to continue teaching about, his, about the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's hear some music. The Lord loves the obedience that comes with faith in him. John chapter 14, verse 21 says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me unconditionally. Put that up, Zach. And he who loves me unconditionally will be loved by my Father unconditionally. And I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will love him unconditionally as well. And I will disclose myself to him. As we deepen our love for the Lord through the daily study of his word, the depth of his love for us keeps on becoming more and more of a reality to us. But the Lord wants us to be clear on one thing. As June Murphy sings, the Lord says, you don't have to beg him to love you.
You sing a little better when you've had a good night's sleep. Okay, note to self, no more evening services for June. Use the CDs. <laughs> what the hell? Last night I thought you had just run a marathon or something. You were limping across the finish line on a couple of them. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you, June. <laughs> you don't have to beg. I love the songs that June writes that sings from God's perspective. And they're beautiful. Let's pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for another chance to learn the Word of God. Let the lessons of this weekend make a difference in how we see you, how we see ourselves, and how we see each other. Let this time we spend together be relaxing and refreshing and restful and stress-free and fun. Let this be a safe place to be vulnerable with each other. Let this be a place where we know we don't need to impress each other. Let this be a time to shed the baggage of the religious deceptions resident in our souls from false teachers teaching false doctrines over the years. Replace those lies with your truth that inspires peace in our souls. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's lesson, How Does Satan See You? How does Satan see you? Hmm. That needs to be tucked, doesn't it? All right, so what comes to mind when you think about Satan, the enemy of God, and his demon army? What ought to come to mind is how he sees you. How does Satan see you? He sees you as a target. I don't believe you heard me. So I'm going to repeat that. <laughs> he sees you as a target. Satan wants to influence you by deceiving you so that he can destroy you. Amen? Amen? amen. Was that a little sobering for you? Is that why that little weak amen came out? <laughs> Hadn't been thinking about that. You know why, why that little weak amen comes out? Because we genuinely don't believe that the people in our lives consider us targets. You know, and, and if the Lord says it, you know, a man's enemies will be the members of his own house. Oh, no, Lord, no. A prophet has honor, just not in his own hometown and not with his own family members. Well, no. No, I don't want to believe that. Okay. All right. But there are people in your life who hurt you over and over and over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, we're not... We're not expressing unconditional love if we don't like being punched in the face. Right? Yeah, no. No, it's, it's really not that way. So he sees you as a target. And when somebody sees you as a target, what they want to do is target practice. You are target practice for Satan. And so the art of war is an ancient Chinese military treatise written by Chinese military strategist Sun Tzu. He, it has influenced the thinking of some of the greatest military leaders in history. As a matter of fact, nobody who's in the military anywhere has ever gotten through that experience without reading this book. 
It's just the Bible of military strategy. In a central premise of warfare, as outlined by Sun Tzu, is this. If you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles because winning in warfare is based on effective intelligence, knowledge. If you know yourself but do not know your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. So it, you either don't know your enemy or you don't want to believe that you have any enemies or you don't want to believe that your enemy is genuinely out to hurt you. Okay, for, but for every victory you gain, you'll sustain a defeat. Amen? Amen? And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, if you are oblivious, <laughs> you will lose every battle. These are interesting thoughts when applied to your spiritual life. Because the Bible makes it clear that your spiritual life is warfare. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 says this, This command to be a pastor, I, Paul, entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously mentioned concerning you and your call to the ministry, that by them you fight the good fight. The spiritual life is a fight. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, believers in Christ are instructed to keep on fighting the good fight of faith, to keep on taking hold of, of the remembrance that you have eternal life, a resurrection life, the Zoe life, to which you were called by God the Father and to which you made the good confession through the baptism of the Spirit in the presence of many witnesses. The Bible wants believers in Christ to know their enemy. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says this, Pick up and put on the full armor of God, the panoply, an impressive array of spiritual weapons provided by God so that you believers in Christ will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. God has an enemy. The Bible calls him by many names, but his primary name is Satan, the devil. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have the same enemy. So my question for you is, do you know the enemy? Remember Sun Tzu's words in The Art of War, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. You must know the enemy. You must not put yourself in a position to be oblivious. When somebody is in the military and they're going into a conflict and they're moving against the enemy, they're not going into the area that they don't know saying, I'll bet nobody will shoot me. They don't do that. They're expecting that they're going to get conflict. But that's not really how we handle relationships a lot of times, and that's why we have these repetitive injuries from people who over a period of time demonstrate that they're out to hurt you. You know, you get about 10 times of that with me, and I get clear. But that's just because I'm a slow learner. I think there are a lot of people who learn a lot faster than that. And I don't. And it's unfortunate. But you have enemies, and that's the thing. That's what I love about sports. That's what I absolutely love about sports. Your enemy is the person who has a different color uniform than you do. And your whole goal, you have two goals. I played basketball. You have two goals, to score more points than they do 
and to damage them psychologically so much that every time they play you, they get the willies. They don't ever want to play you. When they see you, they get a sick feeling in their stomach. That's what sports is about. Why? Because the enemy is clear. You know, there's nothing powder puff about it. The other team, you want to hurt them for 60 minutes, and after you go shake their hand. But in your head, you're thinking, I wonder what furniture I put in that head this time. Because you're trying to get a condo in their head and move the furniture around and adjust it any time. That's exactly what Satan's doing for us. Satan wants to have a condo in your head, wants to move the furniture in, and wants to move the furniture around so that you don't see who you really are. You understand what I'm saying? All right, so Sun Tzu says, if you know the enemy, you know yourself. You need not fear the result of 100 battles. Know the enemy. So let's consider a biblical passage and see if it lends insight into what we need to know about our enemy. How does Satan operate in the lives of unbelievers and believers? Let's look at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15. Here's what it says. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, Jesus spoke to them by way of a parable. Luke chapter 8, verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. Now Larry is getting really weepy about that because as a former farmer, you know, Larry is bothered if seeds fall by the side of the road. Amen? It's like the, the seed's supposed to go in the dirt, right, Larry? And we're not trying to waste money. But this happens sometimes. So the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Luke chapter 8, verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, what this is saying, this is talking about the limestone in Jerusalem and in Israel. There is a lot of limestone, a, a white stone, and when sowers would sow, the, lime, the, the, the seed would get on the limestone, and it would find a place on the limestone where maybe there was some dirt, and the sun and moisture would make it spring up really quickly, but it had no root. And by the way, see, this is, if you go to Israel and you, for the first time, when you go to Jerusalem for the first time, and you see all the limestone there, you are going to know without question that Jesus Christ is black. (laughs) Because there is no way that you can walk around that area with all that sun and all that heat radiating off that limestone and be Harold Christensen right up in here. Right? Ain't no Swedish people over in Israel. You feeling me? <laughs> or Scott, Switzerland. Well, I don't know where you're from, man. Wherever it is. But no. <laughs> yeah, he is from America, isn't he? <laughs> oh, anyway. Back to the, back to the devil. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, verse 7. (laughs) Other seed fell among the thorns, the weeds. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Luke chapter 8, verse 8. Other seed fell into the good soil 
and the seed grew up, and it produced a crop a hundred times as great. As Jesus said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Luke chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus' disciples began questioning him as to what the parable meant. Luke chapter 8, verse 10. And Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it's told in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. That's why we come together when we come together. We come together to let God plant seeds in us that will grow. Who is the sower of the seed? Well, in the parable, it's the Lord, but in reality, it is both the Lord and anyone who's willing to be a mouthpiece of the Lord. Pastors are sowers. Because we are sowing seed as God the Holy Spirit grants us information to pass along to you. We are sowing that seed in your soul. And it takes a while to grow. You really, as a pastor, you really have to think like a farmer because we, you know, a lot of times we just teach you the same thing over and over again. And it feels to us like it just goes over your head. And we feel, you know, we feel like, why isn't it taking? Why isn't it? happening as fast as we think it should, but that's not something that Larry would ever say. Larry wouldn't plant corn in January. Is that when you plant corn, Larry? <laughs> I mean, I know you don't do it anymore, but is that, is that when you used to plant corn? Was it in January? When was it? In April. Okay, so in April or May, yeah, when the soil's getting a little moist, because January, I imagine, is frozen over there in Kansas, right? So... <laughs> Why are you laughing? This is this is a serious conversation I'm trying to have with my farmer friend here. <laughs> so you you plant and there's no way that if you plant in April you expect the crop to happen in May. You just don't because you know it takes time for the seed to go into the ground, to die, to open up, to be watered, to be cared for, to germinate, to produce the harvest at another time. So pastors are sowers. So Luke chapter 8 verse 12 says this, as, as the Lord explains the parable, parable, those seeds that fell beside the road are like those who have heard the word. Then the devil comes and snatches the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people come to Barah Ministries and the next week, they, they were working at a particular job for 18 years. And then they come to Barah Ministries, and the following week, they get asked if they can work on Sunday, and they take the Sunday gig. Cannot tell you how many times that has happened. It is not a joke. Nor is it a coincidence. It happens all the time. But what we're talking about here is Satan's propaganda machine. Today, that is the media and they pound away at the unbeliever's heart to harden it. And they're very successful at it. They harden the heart. They get us to say their, their little expressions. And they convince us to either be indifferent or antagonistic to God. There was a study that came out recently, and I don't know whether it's true or false, but it said that for the first time in the United States of America, church attendance has dropped below 50%. Now, 
If you had said that to me when I was 21 years old, I would have said, oh, my goodness, that's a valid statistic. And, boy, isn't that horrible. And today, I think, is that just something that's being put out to discourage? Is that true at all? And I don't believe anything that is said by anybody on Internet or the rest. I don't believe anything. I have to see it from eight sources before I even give it the thought that it might be credible. I, and I don't know how that happened because I am not cynical. But today, I don't believe 90% of the stuff that I hear. So um, Satan's propaganda machine then pounds away at the unbeliever's heart to harden it, to convince him to be indifferent or antagonistic to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say this. And even if our gospel is veiled, and of course it is, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Who are those who are perishing? Unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, small g God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And that's what the world is doing. It is obscuring the gospel message. You know, you, you mention Jesus Christ, it's taboo. You know, I, when, when athletes are getting interviewed, you used to hear all the time, uh, well, just to begin, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't hear that ever anymore. They probably get coached. If you say Jesus Christ, we're cutting it right there. Right? You just don't hear it. I'm so excited when I hear it. But here's the thing. Why do we expect to hear it in Satan's kingdom? Why do we always live? It's the same, the same delusion that we have that, that family members are all on our side. That delusion is the same delusion that we have that we ought to be hearing about Christian stuff in Satan's kingdom. That Satan's kingdom actually wants us to feel comfortable here. They hate us. This is not our home. They don't want us to have anything that would even remotely make us feel good. So every time you see a movie about Jesus Christ, it always uh, turns him into some milquetoast character with long hair wearing a toga. Yeah, long hair. But that's what we get fed a steady diet of, so much so that we start to adopt it as our viewpoint. The gospel message isn't hard to hear. The gospel is readily available to anyone who wants it, but God has an enemy who is on an incessant campaign to distract unbelievers from the gospel message. Incessant, nefarious, insidious campaign to distract. You start going to church and you start telling your family members about it and they start walking away from you like you rolled over in doo-doo. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Continuing in Luke chapter 8, verse 13. Those seeds sown on the rocky soil are like those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a little while, and then in the time of temptation, they fall away. Well, I can't tell you how many people I've seen come here. And they, they say how great the lesson is, and all oh, the pastor is really great, and then they never come back. Why? Shallow. Shallow. I guarantee it was some, there was something in there 
that was truth. And they were just sitting there waiting for that one thing. Ah, he said it. Ah, I knew that was going to be there. Ah, this reminds me of something else. I'm out. Okay. All right, so that's your motive. That's your choice, too. These are people who are easily distracted. One of my clients uh, is, is that way, and, and so in a self-proclaimed way, he says that he's easily distracted. And his, the, the, the code that he gave me to remind him that he's distracted is, Squirrel! 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 He's <laughs> always distracted. Squirrel! Squirrel! Uh. Right? So the people that are being described in Luke 8.13 are rootless. They never stay in one place long enough to allow the seeds planted in them to grow. They are the new, 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 more, more, more people of the world. They are shallow. Luke chapter 8 verse 14 says this, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are like the ones who have heard the word, and as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and the riches and the pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit to maturity. See, that's what Satan wants to do. If he can't harden your heart, if he can't distract you, then he'll overwhelm you. He'll fill your life with so much activity that your productivity will be choked out. I have a client that I'm working with right now, and I told him, one of the things that I noticed about you in six sessions with you is that you have a five-pound bag, and you are constantly putting 15 pounds of crap in it. And so you're always, always frenetic. Now, the problem is I'm going to get him to stop doing that. And when you go from doing that to doing the opposite, which is putting five pounds of crap in a five-pound bag, it is frightening to you because you've gotten so addicted to this lifestyle of overwhelming yourself. That's what's being described in Luke 8, 14, that... If I can't get you by hardening your heart, and if I can't get you to play squirrel, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put so many weeds in among your flowers that it's going to choke your flowers out. That's what he does. He fills your life with activity and just chokes you. Luke chapter 8, verse 15. But the seeds sown in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart and hold fast the word, And they bear fruit. Key last two words, with perseverance. God always saves the best stuff for last. And so you have to take time. The the beginning of our, our whole plan as Christians looks like work. It looks like overalls. And then when we get toward the end, you start seeing all this stuff that just starts popping up out of nowhere. And it's just beautiful. These are the seeds described in Luke 8, 15 that produce a harvest. So thanks be to God the Holy Spirit for producing the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and what am I missing? Faithfulness. There it is. So how does Satan see us? He sees us as targets. And he uses any number of weapons to harden us, to shallow us, to choke us. Well, how would God want us to handle the devil? He'd want us to rebuke him. (laughs) I rebuke you. Come out. I exercise you. 
You know what Satan does when we do stuff like that? He looks around and is, which one do you want to take that? <laughs> is, is this person, is this guy serious? Seriously. That's the flesh in you. The flesh in you is stronger than you. You know, I love it when people talk about losing weight. They're always talking about, well, I've got to have some discipline. You do have discipline. Here it is. You pick stuff up and you put it in your mouth. That's discipline. But in terms of, and, and by the way, it's that simple. You have the discipline already. Just choose the right thing to put up there, right? And a Snickers bar and a salad are a little different, amen? <laughs> Snickers bar is better, amen? <laughs> so we have the discipline but whenever we start thinking that the solution to our problem is more discipline and more organization and all that stuff, the flesh just laughs at you because it's going to sabotage exactly what you want to do. The answer to our problems as Christians is prayer. God, I'm probably not good enough to do this. Why don't you? And he does it. Since I've started praying, I can't tell you the level of distraction that is coming to my life. Because I, I, I made a concerted decision to make prayer a part of my life in the first thing in the morning and the last thing before I go to bed. And since then, my life is a mess. Distractions everywhere. Weeds choking everything out. And at a point, you just have to notice, you know, that's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. <laughs> I know you guys are looking at me, you're kind of mad. Like, Pastor, why did you send me this? I'm experiencing the same thing. Why did you send me this book? Because I want you to be as miserable as I am, amen? (laughs) No, I'm serious. (laughs) So how does God want us to handle the devil? I think three things. Number one, don't believe him. Don't believe the flesh when it's talking to you. Why? John chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil. This is the Lord talking to the Pharisees. You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of all lies. And so Pastor Farley and I, when we talk about our maladies and the things that are going on with us, one of the the key things we do is remind each other of John 8, 44. Anything that the flesh said to us in that conversation, we believe exactly the opposite. And, you know, you're a lousy pastor. Oop, John 8, 44, you are a liar and there's no truth in you. I must be a really good pastor. Wow. And you know what the flesh, has the flesh ever said to you, John, that you're a good pastor? Never. Never. So that's what's so cool about the flesh. It's so predictable. It's always the same thing. It's always a lie. And it's always the same set of things. So we just go right there. And going right there means when I hear that voice, I do not believe that voice. Because that voice is lying. And I'm not going to believe a liar who's fathering lies. No, sorry. Another thing, don't focus on him. See, I, you, you wouldn't, if I showed you the notes that I had 
for this lesson. It was Satan, Satan, Satan. Satan's objectives, Satan's strategy, Satan's tactics, Satan's weapons. Satan, Satan, Satan. Lord said, nah, dog. Nah. It's not going to be like that. Tear that up. Tear that up. I took four days to come up with all of this stuff. Certainly not tearing that up. Tear it up. Don't make me short out that computer. Tear it up. Drag it to the trash. Seriously? Dragged it to the trash, and this lesson came out. Right? Why? Because the Lord doesn't want us to focus on Satan. Know your enemy, but don't focus on him. Well, then where do we focus? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2a, fixing our eyes on Jesus. (laughs) The pioneer and perfecter of faith. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because what are you going to see when you see Jesus? Perfection. You're going to know exactly what to do. Exactly what the right thing is. And you're going to see yourself exactly as he sees you. You're going to look into Jesus' eyes and you're going to see a reflection of you, the saint, the justified one, the work of art, that whole list. And then the third thing, don't worry about him. If you start worrying, the first thing you ought to do is pray. Prayer is the opposite of worry. Biting your nails and being afraid and thinking you're not going to be the star in your own movie. Pray. Ask God for what you want. Ask him for what you want. He says, anything you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. He says, Jesus said to us, ask the Father anything in my name and I will do it. So if you, if you find yourself worrying, and we all do, look. We're weak. You find yourself worrying? Sit down and pray. Stand up and pray. Run and pray. Lay down and pray. Pray. Ask for what you want. When you get in the habit of asking for what you want, you get in the habit of putting God in a position to give it to you. You know, if you think about something you want, I'll tell you exactly why you don't have it. Because you haven't been specific enough and you haven't asked God for it. You have not been specific enough. You have been vague and general. And you haven't written it down. He wants you to write it down so when he does it, you can go back to the paper and say, wow, I asked him for that and he gave it to me. You know why? Because he wants you to have faith. And that makes you have more faith. That brings your faith to the fore. That's what he wants. But you know, all this is too much work for y'all, ain't it? That's a little bit too much. Why, why don't we have to write it down? You know, why can't we just be spontaneous? <laughs> yeah. Why, why can't we just be spontaneous? That's why you don't have that thing you want. Because you're busy being spontaneous. But anyway, don't worry about it. Pray instead. Romans chapter 16, verse 9 says this. For the report of your obedience to God has reached all of us. This is Paul talking to the believers in Christ at Rome. The report of your obedience to God has reached all of us. Therefore, I, Paul, am rejoicing over you. But as a reminder, I want you to be wise in what is good. What's good? The simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And I want you to be innocent in what is evil. What does that mean? Not being conformed to the world. Instead, being transformed by God through the renewing of your mind. So ask yourself this. 
what situations are you putting yourself in where the propaganda you are getting is against what you think is true? Because when you do that, you are exposing yourself. You are not being innocent of what is evil. Because when people are sending you messages that are evil, it is affecting you. Please don't think you're more powerful than that. It affects you. I had a, a young lady in the, uh, in the youth ministry Bible study, and she was talking about how she hangs out with all the gangsters. And, you know, I'm certainly perverting her words for my own purposes, but <laughs> she was talking about how she likes hanging out with the kids who are the undesirables. And I said, well, and then she was, we ended up talking about marrying an unbeliever. And I said, well, if you hang out around, you're a believer in Christ and you're hanging out around unbelievers all the time, what do you think exactly is going to happen? And she said, well, Jesus hung out with the prostitutes. Yeah, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was omniscient. He knew all the stuff that was coming at him before it was coming so he could get out of there. Do you, are you? So what happens when we hang out with people who are undesirable? What happens? They change you. They change you. Cody, you listening to me? You better be. I'm, I'm, I'm watching you. I need your friend list. I need to vet that list. Harmony, give me a list. Didn't have any friends. <laughs> but who you hang out with matters. You know, my mom wouldn't let me play with the kids in the neighborhood when I was growing up. They jumped me one time, and I was not a fighter. And my sister was a fighter. So my sister made me go out. She said, you're going out and fight them one by one. I said, no, I don't want to fight. She called my mom. Well, my mom invented fighting, so. My mom, my, Jerry says, he got beat up by these kids, and he won't go out and fight them. My mom said, put him on the phone. She said, you go out there, and you do exactly what your sister tells you to do. Boom, hangs up on me. So we go out, and she said, who's the toughest one? And I said, fat. She said, you go up to him, and you hit him right in his mouth as hard as you can with your fist. Do you know how hard it is to hit somebody? I mean, I took Taekwondo, and the, the hardest part of it was actually the sparring where you actually had to hit somebody. Because there's nothing in me that wants to hit somebody. So she said, you go up to him, and you hit him as hard as you can right in his mouth. I said, okay, so we go out. They're all there. I walked up to him. I swung at him. I missed his mouth, but I hit him in the throat. <laughs> well, lucky for me, he had asthma. <laughs> so he was done. So my sister had also told me, anybody else that jumps in, I'll take care of him. So Willie Malone is next. And he comes in, he's a left-hander, and he's rearing up to hit me. My sister knocked him out cold, knocked him out. When he woke up, she grabbed him, and she's punching him in the face. 
And the police drove up. And as the police drove up, they got out of the car and said, what's going on? She said, get him off of me. (laughs) That was my sister. And from that day forward, I never played with the kids in the neighborhood again. It was over. And they never jumped me again. <laughs> Believe me. And it wasn't because of me. <laughs> they saw Willie Malone's face for about three weeks. And they said, we don't want that crazy woman coming at us ever again. So, so anyway, look. Last night, how does God see you? He sees you as amazingly wonderful. How does Satan see you? the exact same way, but he hates it. So what are we going to do? We're not going to let Satan distract us so that we don't get to know and so that we are not intimate with the Lord. We're going to study the word of God because if we let Satan distract us, we are going to forfeit the chance to become the person the Lord has destined us to be from eternity past. That's one of the things I hated when I was playing softball. I always hated it when we had a game the other team forfeited. What does that mean? They didn't show up. That's what happens in our life most of the time. We don't show up, amen? Because we're busy being distracted by other stuff. (laughs) All right, when we return from the break, (laughs) when we return from the break, we're going to hear another phenomenal lesson from Pastor John Farley as he continues his teaching on Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Take a five-minute break. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me.
Well, good morning again, everybody. I am the opposite of June. I am not a morning person, but that's all right. All right, let's begin by praying again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us all here together. We thank you most of all for your love and for your son, Jesus Christ, and how you had him come for us, die for our sins, was buried, and then you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever believes in him, the one who died for us and rose again, will never perish but have eternal life. And so, Father, we would just ask that we would now implement what Pastor Rory taught with respect to keeping our eyes on Jesus. And let us use the, the passages that will be in now as a means to do that. And we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, we've seen that the Gospel of John is a book that answers one question, and it's a profound one. Who is Jesus? If you want to know who Jesus is, then just read the Gospel of John. If you have a friend that wants to know who the real Jesus is, have them read the Gospel of John. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. There's no better book to learn about Jesus than in the Gospel of John. And it just so happens that right now I am really into John. Not me, but at the moment. Because that's the book well, I'm preaching out of back home in Florida. So let's go. I think we can go. Technology. Yes. Okay, our title for the weekend. My, my message is Son of Man, Son of God. Both titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin in John chapter 20, verse 31. Now see, Rory, now you've been looking at my notes. Right? John 20, 30, and 31. Son of Man, Son of God. John is the place to learn about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially about Jesus and as the Son of Man and Son of God. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. For you that study under Pastor Rory, John is right after Luke and right before the book of Acts. June was reminding me that since Pastor gives you all the scriptures now, you know, you kind of lose track where the books are. <laughs> That's all right. I, I, I have trouble with the, with the prophets. I've got to be honest with you. Like, I kind of know where Isaiah is, Jeremiah, the big ones, right? Daniel, Ezekiel. But then you get into something like Habakkuk. Where the heck is Habakkuk? Usually I have to kind of like go through. Like, I know sort of like there's a couple at the beginning. Like, there's like Amos and Joel, and there's another one I can't remember right now. So I kind of have the map in general. But just like scriptures, and a lot of people can say this is a... You turn to you know, John chapter 8, verse 34, and they have this kind of mind that can just come out with it. For me, if I get the right chapter, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. I know it's in the Gospel of John. I think it's chapter 8. So if that's you, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, it's what's written on your heart anyway. So. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. Another way to say that, as we saw last night, another way to say that he's the Christ is that he's the Son of Man. 
Christ means the anointed one. The anointed one in the Old Testament, the word in the Hebrew is Messiah. Those are the same words in two different languages. All right? so, so, and we've seen last night that the Messiah is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God. He has a title for the earthly things, Son of Man, and He has a title for the heavenly things, Son of God. And last night, we got to the place where we would be looking at specifically the Son of Man. By the way, last night I had another um, case of sugar-induced insomnia. (laughs) And so so at a certain point, I don't know, it was like 2 o'clock or whatever, I had this brilliant idea. Right. Let me go back in. I have a computer. I do have a computer, Rory, even though you know, I used the, the copy, the paper version. You know, but. <laughs> and I said, I'm just going to do a concordance search one more time. I've done about 15 of these on the Son of Man in, 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 in the whole Bible, actually. Capital S, capital M. There's one in the Old Testament. And which, what is that? Huh? Daniel. Exactly. That's the only one that has Son of Man in capital letters in the Old Testament. But then you have the New Testament. And I'm usually not a big fan of having the words of Jesus in red because they're all the words of Jesus. But the one time I really was happy because as I did the the search in my PC study Bible and it came up, I saw that all this red, all of this red all the way down. As a matter of fact, just about every passage in the Bible, I'm sorry, in the Gospels, had his had this, this phrase, the Son of Man, it was in red. And even the ones that weren't in red, it was just John saying, and this was something else that, the, that Jesus said about himself. The point is, is that in, in the Gospels, nobody ever calls him the Son of Man except himself. And I found that, that, that kind of, I'm not exactly sure what that all means yet, but I know it's significant. Probably on the flight home, I'll figure, that's exactly what it means, you know. And then, here's the other interesting thing, though. I want you to guess, given what we've seen already about the Son of Man being associated primarily with his earthly calling, primarily with the nation of Israel, all right? Guess guess what's the last time in the New Testament, in the Bible, that the phrase Son of Man appears? Any guesses? Nope. Good guess. That's a great guess. But no, it doesn't, interestingly enough. Any guesses? Three, two, one. You missed it. Book of Acts. The book of Acts is the last time that the Son of Man expression is used. Now, what's significant about that? Well, what is, where is it not found, therefore? In Paul's letters. Now, that's significant. Why? Because Paul's letters are to the heavenly people. And so he talks about the Son of God and doesn't talk about the Son of Man. So I just wanted to throw that out to you. See? The uns- the, there's a good thing about insomnia right there. <laughs> Write it down. <laughs> Last evening we began our study of Jesus as a son of, God, a son of man. And we did begin in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And we saw that the Son of Man will come with the clouds of heaven and receive a dominion, a kingdom, which will never pass away. All the nations and all the peoples will serve him. He will rule over the entire earth forever. Also, we saw in the Old Testament that the Lord promised King David that the Lord would establish his throne and his kingdom forever. That told us that the Messiah, the son of David, is the son of man. One of his descendants of David would sit on his throne forever. He would be the anointed king of Israel, the Messiah, 
the Christ. And then we saw that gospel writers have a lot to say about the Son of Man. And actually, I could probably reword that. The gospel writers have a lot to say about Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. Because that's actually more accurate. So we saw some passages. One, we, got, we didn't get too far. Um, whoops, that describes that Jesus is human. So sometimes, a few times anyway, the title Son of Man actually brings out the fact what it would have said about him is that he was a human being. He was a real human being. However, most of the passages talk about his mission on earth. What was Jesus' mission on earth? I emphasize on earth because the Son of Man, is, is ta- is, that title is tied into his earthly mission and his earthly people of the nation of Israel. Now, that, now what's interesting, as we'll see today, is that there is a transition that goes on and, and, and what, was, what was understood about the Messiah all right, by the people that lived in Jesus' time was one set of facts. They should have known this other set, but they mostly didn't. And that is that not only is he the Messiah, but he's the suffering servant. And when you, get, when you move to that, now you're moving and you find out that that, the fact that he suffered for our sake, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, missing in the understanding, in the worldview, if I could put it that way, of the Jews at that time, that part, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that's for everybody, right? We know that. Jesus died for everybody. And so there's that element of Jesus' mission that is the center point, right? It's the center point of history. And that applies to everybody. So we're going to see that. We're going to see the Messiah. That's part of who the Son of Man is. And then the servant who dies on the cross. That's the other part of it. All right, so that's where we pick things up this morning. We're going to look at some more key passages in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that include this expression, Son of Man. And we're going to see what they tell us about Jesus. We begin, we ended up here last night, but let's begin there this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. I will have mercy on you today. We will only be, I think this is true, in the Gospels. So all you've got you to think about is four books that are right next to each other. So that's good. It's good. All right. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. I'll give you ten minutes to get there. <laughs> I had no respect at all. Matthew 8, 20. Just for that, I'm going to go now whether you're there or not. Matthew 8, 20. Jesus said to him, this is the one that said, I'll follow you anywhere. Right? The one that is the seed that goes in, this, it goes on, and there's a little bit of growth, but then there's, the, there's resistance. There's uh, persecution and then gone. Jesus said to him, let me tell you what you're really up against when you come with me. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. They have a place to live. They have a home. I was going to say they have a roof, roof over their head, but birds don't have a roof over their head. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, this verse powerfully brings out the fact that Jesus is human. He's talking about being a human being, right? God in heaven right, doesn't need a house. I mean, he has one up there, but I'm talking about here on earth, right? But, but Jesus, as human, did. And he didn't have it. So there was a deprivation there. There was a need, a human need that he had, just like we do. And in this case, 
he was, he was without it, which meant he was lowly. We saw this last night, lowliness, right? Lowly. That's, that's what he did for us. All right. Let's continue now in the Gospel of Matthew, though. Let's go to chapter 11, starting in verse 19 and ending in verse 19. Matthew eleven nineteen. I know some of you people are on strike right now. They're like, listen, if you don't have that scripture on the board, I'm not looking at it. <laughs> I get it. I do. I get it. They do that to me too. <laughs> but you have them all on the board. What are you talking about? Why? <laughs> Threaten to walk out. Yeah, man, oh man. It's a tough crowd. Tough crowd. Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man. There's that expression. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, the gluttonous man and a drunkard. I've had people say that to me. <laughs> there was an element of truth, of course, when they, as far as I'm concerned. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, the gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. But I want you to notice the Son of Man. What is said about the Son of Man in verse 19? It's right at the beginning. What does it say? The Son of Man, I know, none of you turn in there because you're, you're protesting against this, but it actually says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. What does that tell you about the Son of Man? He's human, exactly, exactly. So those two passages talk about his humanity. And again, let me just, just to drive the point home, Matthew eleven nineteen shows the true humanity of Jesus. You know, there's two camps of heresy when it comes, about the, comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one camp that says he wasn't God. There's another camp that says he wasn't human. It only appeared to be human. He was really a spirit. And he, he kind of, maybe he took on a human body for a little while, but he wasn't really human. And when he went back to heaven, he didn't have a human body anymore. He's just God again. That's one heresy. Of course, the other heresy, and this is a more popular one today, is that he's not God. I mean, that's the, you'll get confronted with that one, right? As a Christian, you really believe that Jesus is God? You know, he never said he was God. These are people who don't understand anything, by the way. <laughs> you know, it'd be like you or I opening up a, a quantum physics book and quarreling with the author on some point in chapter 5, you know. What? What are you doing? In any event, this shows the true humanity of Jesus. He ate and he drank. Now, the Son of Man was not just human. He also had a mission to complete on earth. Remember, those are the two major themes when you see the word talking about Jesus, the title, Son of Man. Sometimes it's talking about his humanity, but most of the time it's pointing to his mission on earth. I keep emphasizing on earth because the Son of Man is associated with the earth. And for the most part, he's associated with the Lord's earthly people, the Jewish people. Okay. So let's take a look now. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned this already, but... This is really, um, I mean, that's, I get, I get, give you a moment there too. Again, he had a mission. What's a mission? It means he was sent and he had a specific goal. He had a specific set of things that he had to accomplish. All right. The mission that he had and he, and he had to complete it. So he's human and he had a mission to complete as the son of man, which is as a human being. Right. It was as a human being that he suffered. It was as a human being that he was homeless. It was as a human being that he was buried. God can't be buried in the ground, right? As a human being, he was raised from the dead. 
as a human being. He's in a resurrection body now that's a human resurrection body. Don't make the mistake, however, of saying, well, that means he's only human. <laughs> right? He's both. This is one of the, you know, there's a lot of mysteries in God's word. And for a long time, I thought it was the job of the pastor to explain them. Ha! <laughs> They're mysteries for reason. They're mysteries so that we believe them. It's facts, it's information, hidden until, until it was revealed. By the way, there this idea that he's the son of man and the son of God, that he's human and deity, right? Even that really just starts to come into view in the Gospel of John, which, by the way, is a universal gospel, right? He's, he's telling everybody that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. That's a message for everybody. John 3.16 is a message for everybody. So you have the first three. Again, I want to keep emphasizing this is so important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are directed towards the Jewish people. I know this is just kind of going to shock a lot of people, but it's true, all right? Or at least the earthly people. And he, his life as on here on earth and his mission on earth. John is about, starts to be about the heavenly people. It's both. Son of man, title of prison, John, and then the son of God does. All right, so that's where we can see the teaching, right, this, this mystery of Jesus as being to- totally human and then totally God, if I could put it that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's his deity. That's God. Right? And then in verse 14, it says what? The Word became flesh, humanity, both. We see that in the Gospel of John. All right, so the Son of Man had a mission to complete. He had a set of tasks that he had to complete, he had, had things that he had to go through. Um, that mission combines what we've already seen now, the glories of the Messiah. Everything associated with the Messiah in the Jewish understanding now was glorious. Right? We started in Daniel. What did it say about the Son of Man? He's coming on the clouds. He's going to get a kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom that will go on forever. It's all glorious, you see, the, the, their understanding of the Messiah as the son of David was, was a glorious, glorious mission. However, his mission included a second element, which is the agonies of the suffering servant. Now here again, they should have known that. They should have known that, but they didn't. All right? Why? Because it's a lot easier to focus on the glories, and it's a lot more difficult to focus on the agonies. Right? Not only that, but their whole thing with the Messiah was earthly in their mind, which was, we want a king that's going to come and be conquering. And that's all they were thinking about with the Messiah. They totally missed the fact that he's going to die, be buried, and be raised from the dead. So it's both. Now, the Gospels put that together under the title, Son of Man. Now, of course, it does present Jesus to Israel I'd like you to go forward to Matthew 19. Son of Man. Where have we been this morning with that title, Son of Man? What, what, what books? Just one, right? <laughs> I don't throw any trick questions. Some of them you have to be awake for, but other than that... <laughs> Uh, I know. That's questionable. So, um, now we're in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus presented to Israel their Messiah, their King, Lotus. Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, 
truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the regeneration is when the Son of Man is going to come back to earth and it'll be a paradise. Okay, and, and all the Old Testament saints and all what they call the tribulation saints, they're all Jewish and they'll all be raised from the dead and they'll, they'll be regenerated too. So the regeneration when the Son of Man, there's our title, will sit, by the way, who's speaking right now? And Jesus said to them, right, good. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will what? Sit on His glorious throne. This is the, this is the mission of Jesus as the, as the Messiah and the King. He will sit on His glorious throne. And then He talks about the twelve. By the way, I want you to notice something about the twelve. What does it say about the twelve? You will also sit upon twelve thrones. Why 12 thrones? Because they were great guys? They really weren't. I mean, if you, if you study the, the 12, you know, they're, they're problems. But, but because they were associated with the Son of Man and the Messiah, the King of Israel, they would be judging who, though? They would be judging the church. Is that what it says there? The 12 tribes of Israel. See, it's Israel. I just want to point out, Son of Man... Israel. By the way, that should help you understand why it is that we focus on the, the, the Apostle Paul's writings, and we don't we, we we study the other ones, but we have to understand that he was the he was the apostle to the heavenly people. Notice that those uh, the other ones were apostles to who? Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I know that's probably pff, wow. You know, you mean this that, but that's the truth. I want you to just understand that you can see it. If you look at the, um, what, is, what the other apostles talk about, you will see that they're talking about the earthly things and the things of Israel, but now believing, the believers in Christ, but still oriented to a certain extent. Even in the letters, if you think about the letters of 1st and 2nd Peter, you have to ask yourself the question, who were they written to? And you will find out that they were written to Jewish Christians. Same thing with the book of Hebrews, right? Written to Jewish Christians. James, written to Jewish Christians. By the way, John's a special case, but it turns out that he is also an apostle to the Jews. And only Paul is the apostle to the church. By that I mean the body of Christ. Jew and Gentile in one body. That's why it's so, it's so important to understand that. Otherwise, you know, you will be, as a thought experiment sometime, I want you to go read a, a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, all right, and then go over to the, God, to the book of Romans and see the difference. See the difference. You know, in, in Matthew, the Lord says, if you forgive others, I will forgive you. My heavenly Father will forgive you. If, then. What does that sound like? If you do that, I'll do this. Right. Conditional. Law-based. Right. What does it say in the epistles about forgiveness? Does it, does it continue to say, if you forgive your brother, then God will forgive you? It does not. It says, since God has already forgiven you of all of your sins, now, with that gratitude and that grace and that understanding and appreciation of forgiveness that you already have, now I want you to go forgive your brother. Can you see how that's, that's opposite in a way? It's opposite, right? So the poor Christian who was told that the Gospel of Matthew is all for them, it's got to be scratching their head. Am I forgiven or not? That's one of the favorite tricks of Satan, by the way, to the church. Get us wondering if we're forgiven. Right? 
There's so much... I'll be nice. There's so much... I don't know. I can't say anything without being... Yeah, well, anyway. But there's so much BS about this forgiveness thing. All of which, if you really think about it, and you can feel it too, is designed to make you confused. It's designed to think, maybe I'm not forgiven completely. Maybe I had some forgiveness over here, but there's got to be more over here. I've got to do something, of course, for the other one. Not true. Total lie. That's why it's so important to understand the difference between the heavenly and the earthly. The difference between the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, apostle to the church, and the apostles to the Jews. Jesus Christ before his death and burial and resurrection, and then after he ascends into heaven. That's so important to understand that difference. Believe me. It'll, how could, I'll put it this way. How could we listen to Pastor Clark last night say all the things that he said, all from the Word of God, about the church, right, in union with Christ, adopted sons and daughters of the living God, and then go back into a passage that says you're not forgiven until you forgive others. Can you see how they're incompatible? Now, they both, they both had their purpose, by the way, do you know what the purpose is of Jesus when he talks in a legal matter in the Gospel of Matthew? You might say, well, they had to do that. Well, that would be nice, except that they couldn't. Right? The flesh couldn't carry out the law. Right? It was weak through the flesh. Romans chapter 7, if you haven't studied that, it'll free your mind. It'll just free you right up to understand that the flesh can't carry out the law. And therefore, you need a new way, which is the spirit wars against the flesh. So that's how it works. In any event, Israel, Jesus is presented to Israel as their Messiah and King. And we saw that in Matthew 19, 28. All right. So let's continue. Now Matthew, that, that, so Matthew 19, 28, that was the the, the part of his mission that had to do with the glorious things related to their understanding of the Messiah as the one who would come and have a military victory and then sit on his throne and be glorious, right? Coming on the clouds. That's all they understood. But the Son of Man has a second mission. And that second one is that he is also, and you can see this, of course, in the, in the Gospels when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, it's the suffering servant. It's the one who would come and die for the salvation of the people. The Son of Man also had to suffer and die. Now, when, they, when the Jews started hearing this, they were, they were mortified. They said, no, that's not my understanding of the Messiah. You know, where are you getting that from? Well, of course, they, they, they should have known. That's, a, that's another theme, right? So many things that were true about the Lord Jesus Christ that he came and he said about himself were actually in the Old Testament. I mean, how can anybody have read Isaiah chapters 52 and 53 and miss the point that there's a suffering servant who will die for the sins of the world? You, you can't miss it. Psalm 22? If you read Psalm 22, it is really getting into the head of Jesus when he's dying on the cross. Can you imagine that? By the way, that tells you that, that his death and burial is, is associated, first of all, with the nation of Israel. That's another shocker. But that's what you have to start with Israel and then understand what God did 
and fulfilling the, the, what he said he would fulfill in, in, in the Son of Man, and then moving into what he also said about the Son of God. All right. I know that's, that can be tricky, but I want to try to make it as simple as I possibly can. In other words, the suffering servant is for everybody. It's for everybody. All right, so let's see a passage still in Matthew now. I'm being good to you. Matthew chapter 20. We're shifting now from his mission as the Messiah, as understood by the Jews, the glories of him returning, the glories of him taking his throne and ruling forever. That's part of his mission. Now, here's the other part. The fact that he had to suffer and die. The fact that he was also the suffering servant. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And are you with me, anybody? The Son of Man. There's the title of the Son of Man. Now let's see what Jesus says when he calls himself the Son of Man. What does he say? He says, the Son of Man. And they heard that expression and they were thinking, oh, glory. Tell me more about the glory. But what did they actually hear? He'll be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Peter didn't want to hear this. Remember what happened when he heard this? He says, I will never let that happen to you. Now, of course, then Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. Now, he didn't really. He was actually talking to Satan and the lie that he put in the head of Peter, right? But he didn't, Peter had the, didn't have the foggiest idea when he was following Jesus that he was actually following that suffering servant who would go to the cross and die. He didn't want any part of that. He didn't want any part of that. But that's what Jesus said about himself. Son of man, be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, his enemies, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans who had that, that horrible form of death called crucifixion. They will mock him, they will scourge him, they will crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. The Son of Man had to suffer and die. Not only that, but the Son of Man would be buried. Son of Man, earthly mission. When he died on the cross, that cross was, was planted in the ground in the earth. When he, when he died, his body was put in the earth, right? In the tomb. Now I want you to look at, uh, at the gospel, I mean, sorry, at the, where is it? I guess I miss, I'm always missing things, but that's okay. Oh, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> For once, I, I put it in there. Now I've killed it. There we go. Please turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. The Son of Man had to suffer and die. That's also part of his mission. Not only that, but the Son of Man his earthly mission now had to be buried. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Again, Jesus is talking. He's calling himself the Son of Man. And notice what he says about himself as the Son of Man. Matthew 12, 40. Where are we still, by the way, this morning? Matthew. Matthew. Just that, see, this is, it, yeah, like, like Roy said, the Lord make, is simple. He makes perfect sense, you know. We just understand that some simple things, really, right? So anyway, 
Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, Jonah, of course, was the prophet. He was also supposed to be an evangelist. And, but he went the other way. It's great to see a map where he was, right? Where Nineveh was and where he headed, right? You know, as far as the east is from the west, well, he experienced that. Because the Lord's going to get him in the east, but he headed as far west as he possibly could. All right, in any event, and then because of that, he was tossed into the water and then the big beast of the sea took him and he was in the belly of the monster for three days and three nights. By the way, that's a Jewish reference, right? Can you imagine if Paul was going to, I don't know, Colossae for the first time? He actually never went there, so I'm going to pick another one example. But, and he started talking to Gentiles, and he started talking about Jonah. They'd be like, who's that cat? Jonah? I don't know. It's, give me another example. I don't know what he's talking about. So it was, in other words, Jewish reference. They should have understood it. Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, buried for three days, three nights. This was shocking to the Jews who heard him speak. He has now been teaching that the Son of Man, the Messiah, will die and be buried. And be buried. And then the Son of Man has to be raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Here on earth. In a resurrected human body. Let's look at Luke chapter 24 verse 6. Luke chapter 24, verse 6. Listen to those pages, Russell. Ah, it's a beautiful thing. It's like going to the ocean and hearing the roar of the waves. (laughs) All right, Luke 24, verse 6. Notice that, okay, so we're not in Matthew anymore. But we're in Luke. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a title called the Synoptic Gospels. You know, I don't, I don't like using that word only because it's like synoptic. We don't use that word for anything else, right? But the idea is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are coming from the same basic viewpoint, right? Sin together, optic eyes. So they, they, they're from pretty much the same viewpoint. They have a lot of things in common. Right? And again, it's describing the mission of the Son of Man, primarily to Israel. Okay? So we're in Luke. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 6. Luke chapter 24, verse 6. Because the Son of Man had to be raised from the dead. He is not here, but He has risen. Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The Son of Man. That's part of His mission. Not only that, but the Son of Man would ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that, of course, becomes heavenly. But but the, the Bible talks about the ascension in terms of the people left on earth looking at Him go into the clouds. So it's still talking to the earthly people, talking about what's going to happen to Jesus in the clouds. In any event, look at John chapter twenty, John chapter six, verse sixty-two. John six sixty-two. 
Again, we're just looking at the Son of Man. Now we're in John. What that tells us is, is that this is something that combines the earthly and the heavenly, which of course it does, right? He ascends from the earth into the heavens. Look at John chapter 6, verse 62. Again, Jesus is talking about himself. John chapter 6, verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man, there it is, ascending to where he was before, so that the Son of Man, his mission includes ascending back to his Father. Also, we see it in Matthew, whoops, same there, Matthew 26, verse 63. Back in Matthew now. We see the same thing. Only now, we're going to see another fact. Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus, we've already been here, by the way, this past, but Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man would ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. All right. And then in the future, we see now. We're going back to, the, to the, what they thought about with the Messiah. We're going back to Daniel. The Son of Man will return on the clouds with his angels to earth at his second coming. All right, let's just see that. Please turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. How much time do I have, sir? Uh, 16. Really? That's cool. I like that number. Okay, 11. 21? 16. Well, I'm negotiating. You're bargaining. You started with, yeah, that's right, I'm bargaining. You started with 16, you went to 11, I went to 21. We'll meet in the middle. Matthew 24, 29. Now we're back to the Messiah. See, we've seen the mission of Jesus as a suffering servant, dying, being buried, being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven, and then takes the seat at the right hand of the Father. By the way, right now there's a human being, as well as God, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But that emphasizes his humanity. See that? There we go. Son of man, humanity, right? Why? Because God doesn't sit, right? That's the Father. You know, God is everywhere, but a human sits somewhere. Okay? So you have... The human, he's also God, but for, I want you to think about him as your high priest representative, the one who was interceding for you, who's known by everything what it means to be human. So he's the perfect person to intercede for you with the Father, because not only is he the Son of God, but he's the Son of Man, and he knows what it's like to be a man or a woman, and therefore he can, he can be a credible one to intercede for us. Right? I, mean, I don't know, I'm imagining this now, but he might say, you know, right now, you know, Rory is going through something where he's being rejected by people he thought were his friends. And then Jesus could look at his father and say, you know, I know what that is like. You see, I, when I was here on earth, in my humanity, which I still have, I was rejected by people I thought were my friends. 
So I know what I'm talking about. I know how hard it is, Father, be there for him. See, that's part of what Jesus is doing right now. All right, in any event, Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31. Jesus is speaking again. He's explaining the end times. His disciples wanted to know, when will these things occur? And he says, he tells them all about the tribulation period and then the second coming. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give up its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of... The Son of Man, right, will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, we're back to Daniel, of the sky with power and great glory. There's the glory of the Messiah. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. All right. So there we have his back to his mission as the Messiah, as the one who would come and sit on the throne of David. He's the Son of Man. I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, in verse 31, notice that he comes with his angels. So, you know, we have the picture that Jesus comes back with the church, right? But I got a question for you. If he's as the Son of Man, and he's, and he's saying, this was in the Old Testament, you know who wasn't in the Old Testament? The church. The church, okay? So again, this is also talking about Israel, right? I know that's, I know that's kind of something that maybe you've got to, wait a minute, I didn't learn that. That's got to be wrong. I get it. Give me time. But you can just look, right? He's coming back with his angels to earth to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, okay? The elect here that are gathered from the four winds are the Jewish remnant Okay, they're the Jewish remnant that's being gathered from one end of the sky to the other. At that time, the Son of Man will establish his kingdom and will rule over all peoples and nations and tongues here on earth. That's the second coming. coming. All of this is the second coming. Absolutely. Matthew 25, 31. It's not. It's not. Because why? Because we're not his earthly people. We're his heavenly people. When he comes back... Chilling in heaven. Oh, okay. We're just going to watch it. Yeah, pretty much. On TV. Here's the mystery. (laughs) Closed circuit, by the way. But half of you don't know what I just said, but that's okay. See, back in the 70s... Like the Hunger Games. Yeah, right, 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 right. Right, exactly, exactly. Now I've been distracted and I don't even know what I was going to say. Not your fault. I did it to myself. Yeah. Right, right, right. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Who's, who's He coming with? The angels. All right. See, now, the question about where the church is, that's a great question. But we can't answer it in the Gospel of Matthew because the church isn't there. By the way, here's another shocker. We can't answer it in the book of Revelation either because that's about the Jews also. Everything about that book is Jewish. All right? Who Jesus is represented as is Jewish. Right? He's not represented as the one people are in union with and the one who is, uh, who is uh, the, 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 
this is a really good one. He's not represented as the one who is interceding for the, for the saints in heaven. Like if you've ever read chapters 2 and 3, actually chapters 1, 2, and 3, but 2 and 3, I want you to see if you can find anything that Paul has described about the body of Christ in Revelation 2 or 3. You can't. You cannot find anything. Okay, There's still judgment at the end. Think about it. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you read Revelation 2 and 3, you'll see plenty of judgment impending. You will also see how the promises that he is making those who overcome, which, by the way, are, are going to be believers in the tribulation period, all promises that he, that he talked about in the Old Testament about Israel, about, about the fact that you will sit with me on my throne on earth. For, and, and anyway, I don't want to get into a big um, distraction on Revelation, but it's true. All right? It's true. It's, it's a focus of that is on Israel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man is going to suffer, he told them. The Son of Man will then rise from the dead. These were things that the Jews should have known about their Messiah, about the Son of Man. But they completely ignored it. They would prefer a conquering king to a suffering servant. And that's why they, they were blind to the suffering servant part. Please look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Jesus has risen from the dead at this point. Luke 24, 44. He's with his disciples. And I want, to, I want you to see very carefully what he says to them. Luke chapter 24, 44. So they were still perplexed. They still didn't really understand exactly what had just happened. They didn't really, like, still, I'm, I, I, you had to die. You had to be buried. You, had to, you were raised from the dead. How did we miss that part? Right? Oh, by the way, the implications of his death, burial, and resurrection, you know where you find them? In the, in the epistles. It's in the epistles that the church realizes that when he died, we died with him. He didn't say that to Israel. Okay? Very earthly perspective. This is why the Messiah on earth, had to do and go through the things that he did. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Now he said to them, his disciples, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. See, he told them these things. Not only are they in the Old Testament. He told them these things were going to happen. They still didn't want to hear it. Okay, These are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things which are written about me, notice where? In the law of Moses in the prophets, in the Psalms. Those were all written 100% to Israel. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Old Testament. Then he opened his, uh, their minds to understand the scriptures. What scriptures? The law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms. And again, these are things they should have known. He taught about his, I want you to think about this, he taught about his death, his burial, and resurrection 
the Lord revealed those things in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. They should have known, but they didn't. Then he opened their eyes, their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. What a moment, by the way, in verse 45. It's one verse. But you know what this really is? This is really him walking through the entire Old Testament. He went, through, went to places in the law of Moses. He went to places in the prophets. He went to places in the Psalms. And he showed all, all of it pointed to him as the son of man and his mission. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins, that's a Jewish concept, by the way, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. They should have known it was all in the Old Testament. But he had to explain it to him after he rose from the dead. All right, well, we've now finished up with the Son of Man, and we are next going to go, of course, and talk about the Son of God, the heavenly things. And by the way, when we see the Son of God, we're going to see what that title really means. All right? And it's going to be something that, it's obvious once you see it, but maybe it's something that we've overlooked. Okay? The Son of God. Now, just, I'll just give you a little teaser. The name, the Son of God, speaks of Jesus and his relationship with his Father. That's, that's, when we look at the Son of God, it's Jesus and his relationship with with his father. And when you think about it, that, doesn't that make perfect sense? Right? If I'm the son of Bob Farley, that is talking about my relationship with my father. Son of. And that's exactly what we find in the Gospel of John, primarily, when the, when the title Son of God is used for Jesus. Right? And the Son of God is something that other people called him Right? Unlike the Son of Man, where he called himself that, the Son of God is something that other people used as a name and a title for him. The Son of God speaks of Jesus and his relationship with his Father. So in closing, I just want to get, again, this basic concept now. See, we're moving from the Son of Man. We saw that it was his mission on earth as the Messiah, as the suffering servant. Okay, now we're done with that. And now we're moving into the second title, Son of God. And we see that the Son of God no longer speaks of the mission, the earthly mission of Jesus. Right? It now talks about his relationship with his Father in heaven, the Son of God. So again, I just want to, just as we close, I want to just set this up. Nothing that I haven't already said, but just to make it, you know, just to look at it and say, these are the two, basically when we talk about these two titles, this is what the Bible says about the Son of Man and the Son of God. The Son of Man, when that title is used, it's talking about Jesus' mission on earth on behalf of men and women. On the earth, on behalf of men and women. It's, it's, his, it's his relationship, if I could put it that way, to us, to men and women. Okay? That's the Son of Man, when the Son of Man title is used. When the Son of God is used, it's his relationship with his Heavenly Father. Earthly, son of man, earthly, men and women, son of God, relationship. Notice too, I want to know one other thing. Son of man, mission. Son of God, relationship. Son of man, mission on earth on behalf of men and women. Son of God, relationship with his heavenly father. Okay, son of man, son of God. 
All right, let's close at this point in time. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, as we always do, for your word that's living and active. And it's your word that your son spoke when he had his confrontation with Satan. And that's how he defeated him that day in the wilderness. It is written. And that's how we also stand firm against him today. And Father, we ask now that you would bless the remainder of this day for us, that we would have a time of relaxing fellowship with one another, that the people would not ask very difficult questions of the pastors this afternoon, (laughs) such that we also might have a relaxing and peaceful time. And we ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.
Welcome back, and thank you, Pastor John Farley, for an extremely enlightening couple of lessons. Well, I'll tell you what, those, those lessons just make everything about the New Testament pretty clear. Say again? Yeah, I, I wanted to, but, you know, he's not a greedy guy, so he just wouldn't have even taken it. <laughs> All right, so we're going to close with a song. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this, It was for freedom that the Lord Jesus Christ set us free. Therefore, keep on standing firm in the freedom, and don't be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That's the way our Lord wants us to think about life, to think about it as free people and not as slaves. And that's exactly the opposite of what the world wants us to think. The world wants us to think like slaves and to forfeit our freedom. But that's the salvation that the Lord invites us to, a salvation of freedom. Or as June Murphy puts it in song, the Lord is calling you to freedom. your pain he knows your secrets your guilt and shame he knows you're weary tired and worn your heart's been broken your Oh!
Closing doxology of praise to our Lord, Philippians 4, 6. These are biblical words containing praise to our Almighty God. Philippians 4, 6, stop worrying about anything. Instead, in everything by prayer and petition, with an attitude of thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God the Father. And the peace of God the Father, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds, flooding your souls with peace, you who are in union with Christ Jesus. Now to Jesus Christ, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling, the one who is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through our union with Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, thank you for making a difference in our lives with your word. Thanks for loading the seeds into us that will be watered and planted over the years so that we continue to get to know you better. Thanks for helping us to distinguish what is Israel's and what is the church's. Thank you for the excellent teaching that you brought here this weekend through Pastor Farley. Thank you for these amazing people in the non-resident congregation who are the backbone and foundation of this church, who are loyal and faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and who edify the people who are part of this ministry. As we go forward this afternoon to enjoy ourselves, let us 
take all the burdens off of our back and pour them onto you and instead just really enjoy each other, enjoy the company, enjoy the food, and have a very frivolous time. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen for the party. <laughs> thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening. Okay.